Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, since Easter, we have been looking together at the Minor Prophets, one uh, each week. The Minor Prophets are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, uh, and we don't call them minor because they deal with minor things. Uh, if you've been with us at all, you know that they definitely do not deal with minor things. Uh, we call them minor because they are shorter than the other prophetic writings, and there is none shorter than the one that we're going to look at this morning. As a matter of fact, the book of Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament. And my guess uh, is that most of us here this morning, with the exception of the choir, <laughs> have probably never heard a sermon on Obadiah before. <laughs> um, I know I had never preached one until about an hour ago. Um, but it is a powerful little pill, and I am glad that we get to look at it together. So I'm going to read a little more than half of Obadiah for us. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 and 10 through 15, and then I'm going to read the conclusion, verses 20 and 21. So you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed, or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. The exiles of this host of the people Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that the words that we just sang would be true in this moment, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would plead for us and pray for us. That you meet every single one of us through this word that we have read and heard together, that you'd meet us exactly where we are, those of us who are here this morning who are ready to hear from you and eager, who feel close to you, 
those of us who feel far away from you because we have been running or because you just seem distant and far to us. Meet those of us who are here this morning who aren't sure what it is that we believe at all. Meet those of us who are certain we are outside of faith. Meet every one of us and show us steadily the grace of Jesus and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by reading the opening lines of an essay called Missing Parts. Um, this is an essay that I first read in an, in an anthology called Brothers, uh, 26 Stories of Love and Rivalry. It is a collection of essays by men um, about being brothers. So here are the first lines of the essay, Missing Parts. I'll start with the premise that a brother shows you who you are and also who you are not. He is an image of the self at one remove, but also a representation of the other. You are brought together with your brother in a unique and specific consanguinity. You came from the same womb. You are a we with your brother before you are a we with any other. A brother shows you who you are. I have an older brother. Every time I think about that passage, I wonder at how true those words feel to me. A brother shows you who you are. <laughs> if you are a guy who has a brother, maybe you feel those words to be true. And these words from this particular essay take on a pointed resonance when we consider that they were written by David Kaczynski, the younger brother of Ted Kaczynski, better known to us as the Unabomber. You might remember that it was David who ultimately led the FBI to his older brother, Ted. And I wanted to read those words to us this morning because two brothers in conflict are the fountainhead of Obadiah's prophecy. Obadiah is a collection of judgment poems against the nation of Edom, and the nation of Edom are the descendants of one of the most famous pairs of brothers in the Old Testament. Edom descended from Esau. They are Esau's children. And if you know the story, you know that Esau and his brother Jacob, who God later renamed into Israel, these two brothers had been in conflict since before they were born, they were actually in conflict in their mother Rebecca's womb. You, you can read about their rocky and painful and I think beautiful relationship in Genesis 25 through 36. But most relevant to us in this moment is to know that the descendants of those two brothers um, continued that painful relationship for their, much of their existence. They continued the conflict that their fathers had through military and political aggression for much of their existence. And here's one of the things that I think is amazing about Obadiah. It is about this nation Edom, but it is not given to Edom. It is given to Israel. Why? Because a brother shows you who you are. There is no one better to hold up a mirror to you than a sibling. The faults of Edom are not unique to Edom. 
In this book, in fact, Edom becomes a parable for all human beings. And that's why you and I need to hear it. So what I want to say is that we know next to nothing about Obadiah, but that would not be true because we know absolutely nothing uh, about Obadiah. We don't know where he lived. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know anything at all about his biographical information. In fact, we don't even know uh, directly when he wrote because he does not directly tell us. We don't know exactly when he preached because he doesn't tell us when he preached. We have to figure that out from the things that he writes in the book. And fortunately, that becomes uh, pretty clear in short order. But here's how Obadiah starts. He just drops out of the blue and says, Thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us go to battle against her. So that's the opening line of Obadiah. He begins by saying that at some point, some unnamed nations are going to go against Edom in battle. It is not presented as a possibility. It is presented as a foregone conclusion. And it's a foregone conclusion because God is the actor behind it. And this thing, this truth is everywhere in Scripture. All of the nations of the world do their thing. Their leaders rule and they rage and they reign. But behind them, God stands moving to work what he wants to work in this world. And in the end, after the long game of history has been played out, God's good intentions for the world will always succeed. But why Edom? Why is Edom under threat. Obadiah cuts to the heart of it in verse 3. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Edom is under threat because of their pride. The nation of Edom was just southwest of the Dead Sea. That means that it was a neighbor, a very close neighbor to Israel and to Judah. It was not only a brother nation, it was a neighbor nation. The most populous regions of Edom were set into a ridge of mountainous land that rose to almost 5,000 feet at its highest point, and it was surrounded on all sides by deep, dark caverns and gorges. So, as you could probably guess, this position made Edom virtually impregnable to attack. Just a small army of soldiers could repel a much larger army of soldiers for a very, very long time. And Obadiah calls them on this. He says, you are the ones who live in the clefts of the rock. You soar above like an eagle. It's like your nest is set among the stars. And this position in life had led to Edom's pride. But it becomes very clear very quickly that it is not just about a good location. It is not just about military prowess and ability. It becomes very clear that their pride runs deep into who they are as human beings and that it causes them to fail in love on the day that it matters the most. They ask... Who will bring me down to the ground? So this is a great place for a moment, for us to stop for a moment, and for us to think about pride. 
not Edom's, our own. I mean, pride, church, it is uh, literally the oldest sin in the book. It's the oldest one. We trace it back to our first parents in the garden. There they were living as they were created to live. They were living as they were created to be in good and in flourishing. They flourished in their relationships with each other, in their relationships with the created order. They flourished in their relationship with God. But then they choose to believe, and not just to believe a lie, but to live out a lie that said, Hey, I think that I know better than God how to run things. I'm not sure he has my best in mind. And I trust myself more than him. I've got some ideas for this place. I've got some ideas for my life. And I need him to step aside. And from that moment until now, we have lived with the deep rupture and entropy and shame and pain that happens in creation when humans try to play God. And from that moment until now, church, we have lived out of the same lie. We have believed the same twisted story. It never changes. And this is what Scripture means when it talks about pride. That is the dark side of it. I mean, it's okay. It is okay to feel great about something that a friend of yours did. It is okay to feel pride in something that your kid did. It's okay even to feel pride when someone says, thank you for doing this thing that helped me, that served me. I mean, these are beautiful things. These are pointers to the way relationships were made to work, where we go outwards towards others instead of ourselves. It is the twisted inversion that is the problem the self-absorption that slowly creeps into every corner of our lives. The self-absorption that creeps into every corner of our hearts and makes us the rule by which everyone else needs to be measured. The self-absorption that creeps in and it makes us and our proclivities and our tastes and our ideas and our opinions the standard by which everyone else must be judged. The self-absorption that, that creeps in that makes all of our judgments, no matter how messed up they are objectively, appear in our eyes to be righteous judgments. Church, a moment's reflection, I think, is all that people like us need to see that that stuff is deep in our hearts. It is in my heart. It has been lodged there for as long as I can remember. It rears its ugly head almost every day of my life. And I hope that every one of us here this morning can be honest enough to admit that pride is like a coiled snake in all of our hearts. It is the err sin. It is the fountainhead sin in your life and in my life. And it leads us into places that we were never, ever made for. 
St. Augustine reflected on pride. This is what he said in his confessions about pride. He said, who can unravel that twisted and tangled naughtiness? It is foul. I hate to reflect on it. I hate to look at it. But thee do I long for. And that's the only reason, church, that I bring this up. It is that thee that I long for because we are made for something more than that. Something better than that. Something more beautiful than that. The only antidote to the poison of pride is the grace of Jesus. It's the only thing I know of, church. It is the only thing I know of that will weaken pride. And so we need to put ourselves in the places where grace is. That's why we worship together every Sunday. That's why we read scripture together every Sunday and throughout our weeks. That's why we pray here and pray in our homes. That's why we live together in community. That's why we take the sacraments. Because these things are for our good. They are for our healing. God uses them to weaken our pride and to work humility in us and to restore us into the people that we were made to be and into the kind of life that we were made to live. Here's how Augustine puts it. Our only solution is to be found by fixing our eyes on the humble one and by washing in the divine blood that flows from God's self-humbling. So a brother shows you who you are. That's Edom, and he is our brother. He is a mirror for ancient Israel, and he is a mirror for us. And Obadiah circles in on him. Obadiah zeroes in on Edom, and he gives us a glimpse in verses 10 through 15 of the horror that Edom's pride led them into. It led them into a tragic failure of love when it mattered the most. This is where we find out that Obadiah must have written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 586 or 587 B.C. This was when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem and slaughtered their defenses and slaughtered so many people and destroyed the temple and carried off lots of survivors into exile. It was one of the darkest days, the darkest moments in the history of God's people. So what did Edom do? What did brother Edom do? What did neighbor Edom do on that dark day? Obadiah is unsparing. He says, on the day that strangers carried off the wealth of Jerusalem, Edom stood aloof. When their enemies cast lots for the wealth of Jerusalem, Edom became like one of them. He wanted to die. He was ready to get some. And then Obadiah lists these series of prohibitions. They're brilliantly stated because they are actually indictments of what Edom did that day. They gloated over their brother in the day of his misfortune. They rejoiced over the ruin of the people of Judah. Psalm 137 is this incredibly sad lament song over the fall of Jerusalem. And the psalm writer catches the posture of Edom perfectly when he cries out to God and he says, Remember, O Lord, the Edomites, remember what they did. On the day of Jerusalem, they said, Lay it bare. Down to the foundations, lay it bare. Edom gloried in the destruction of Jerusalem and taunted their brothers and taunted their sisters in pain. 
And shockingly, they go even further than that. In verses 13 and 14, Obadiah writes that they took advantage of this horrific situation by sending out looting parties to slip into the cities and get a little bit. While these cities were probably still on fire. And in perhaps the most painful of their actions, they cut off the fugitives who were running from the conflict. They captured them. And they turned these refugees over to the Babylonians. It is grim, and it is ugly. And Obadiah wants us to know, he wants us to make sure that we know that these were not just cruel things done by a people who also happened to be proud. He wants us to know that these things were done precisely because they were proud. This is the place where their pride has taken them. When the ultimate reference point in my life is myself. When the most important consideration for us is us. We can be led and be capable of some very grim things. Things we were not made for. Things this world was not made for. And any time, church, any time you and I take even the slightest, tiniest amount of pleasure in the downfall of someone else, we number ourselves with Edom. Any time people like us, we would, we would never say this, <laughs> we're too sophisticated. But anytime people like us think to ourselves, however quietly, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not like her. When we do that, we number ourselves with Edom. Anytime we stand aloof at the suffering of others, we number ourselves with Edom. These are grim and ugly things for which we have not been made and for which the world has not been made. And so Obadiah has a word for Edom. And it is in verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Now there's a couple of remarkable things about that. First, I just want to mention that thing that he says about Edom's deeds falling on Edom's head. I mean, if you have been hurt, if you have been the victim of a crime, then it is desperately important to have someone come to you, to come to your defense, to protect you, to lift you up, to make you whole again. That kind of restoration is incredibly important, and that is part of justice. But if the person who hurt you, if the entity that carried out the crime remains free to run on the streets, to exist with abandon, to do whatever it wants to do or they want to do, then you will never be at peace and the world will never be at peace because it needs to stop. It needs to be restrained. It needs to be hopefully restored. Jesus' mother, um, Mary, right after she heard that she was going to have a baby who would be the son of the Most High, she sang a song. 
And she sang of that kind of fully formed, holistic, robust justice when she said, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and He has exalted the humble. Full, holistic, true justice. Mary knew that a day was coming, even though she didn't know exactly what it would look like when it came, she knew that a day was coming when God would set things right and establish justice and peace in this world forever. That's what Obadiah is talking about when he says that the day of the Lord is near. He's talking about a time when God would set the world to right. He would establish justice and peace and righteousness forever in this world. And several of the prophets talked about the day of the Lord. And here's the thing. It was really popular to talk about the day of the Lord and to think that it was about everybody else. Israel did this all the time. They'd talk about the day of the Lord and it would be like, we'll be okay. Everyone else will be set to right. And the prophets loved to flip that on its head and say the day of the Lord will play no favorites. It will play no favorites It would be for everyone. That's what Obadiah does. In verse 15, he doesn't say the day of the Lord is coming for Edom. He says the day of the Lord is coming for all nations. Because a brother shows you who you are. It's Obadiah's way of reminding God's people that Edom does not have a corner on the market of pride. (laughs) They do not have a corner on all of the grim and ugly places that our pride leads us into. And the truth that God's people knew all too well was that they had fallen to Babylon because of their own pride and self-reliance. Edom's pride was a mirror of their own. But Obadiah wants us to know, he wants them to know, God intends to do something about this. And from there, this little book opens up and it begins to envision a future that even the most optimistic among God's people would have found hard to believe. The minor prophets do this all the time. All of the prophets do this. They switch. They turn on a dime. And all of a sudden, they're talking about this future that sounds almost too good to be true. And that's what Obadiah does. He tells them about a future when a remnant of God's people will be restored to the land in justice and in righteousness. He tells them in verse 21 about a future when even the mountains of Edom will be ruled in justice and peace. It won't just be about Edom. It won't just be about Israel. It will be about the whole world. The kingdom, Obadiah says, the kingdom will be the Lord's. He doesn't know exactly what it is he's talking about. (laughs) He has no idea how this is going to happen or what it will look like when it does, but church, we do. (laughs) We know that he's talking about Mary's son and the work that Mary's son will do. He's talking about Jesus taking all of our pride and all of the collected ugliness of the world's pride on its back, all of the corrosive, dehumanizing pain and shame that pride causes. He's taken all of it on its back and he is draining of it, draining it all of its power. He is breaking it all of its power so that he could establish justice and righteousness and peace in the whole world. It's the gospel. It is the curse of Obadiah 
completely flipped on its head. Our deeds do not fall on our head. <laughs> they fall on Jesus' head. He works justice for us. He works peace for us, even in our violence, even in our injustice. This is the good news, church, and it cost him everything. Everything. It's the cost that Augustine was talking about when he talked about the blood that flows from God's self-humbling. But Jesus was glad to pay it for our good and for the good of this world because he knew that it would lead to our healing and to our forgiveness. And Jesus' resurrection, which we celebrate in this time of the year, his resurrection means that we have the power, we have everything that we need to be changed into people who are having pride weakened and are having humility worked in us, being made in us. The resurrection of Jesus means that, that he is working in us and that his promise is certain. He will do this in us. He will weaken our pride. He will grow our humility. He will make us into people who do not fail to love when it matters the most. His promise is that he will heal us completely, church. And he will. <laughs> Let us cling to him in repentance and faith. Let me pray for us. Father, as we often pray, do whatever you need to do <laughs> to work this in us. Use everything that you have to work this in us, to weaken the pride that is just so knotted into our hearts. Help us to be people who trust not in our own self, but in you. <laughs> Help us to be people who have been healed by the blood of your humbling. <laughs> Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.